The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Okay, why don't we get started if we could. We're um, looking tonight at uh, a continued study on, on the doctrine of God. This is systematic theology. For those of you that are wondering where you are, you're at First Baptist Church, Durham, 414 Cleveland Street, and we are studying systematic theology tonight. Um, and we've gotten in last time, uh, two weeks ago, to the doctrine of God. And so now we're going to be looking uh, tonight at the attributes of God, and, and that also for the next couple of sessions, God willing. Um, what I've given you on the back page here is a list of the attributes of God uh, that I generated um, from some other systematic theologies, and then I supplied also a single brief verse for each one, and this is in the new member handbook, actually, and we go through this um, uh, but I think this is a marvelous list, and I love to go over this um, and just worship God. Um, this is what we mean when we talk about the attributes of God. So that's just kind of extra. We're going to be zeroing in tonight on the incommunicable attributes of God, and we're going to talk about what that means. But uh, here are the attributes, and let's take a minute and just look over them. First, it speaks of God's self-existence. We're going to talk more about that, God willing, tonight, but... Self-existence means that he did not need to be created. And the scripture verse there is, I am who I am. Uh, Exodus 3.14. Immutability. It means that God does not change. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3.6. God willing, again, we're going to talk about that tonight. Absolute perfection. As for God, his way is perfect. Everything God does is right and perfect. Eternity. Um, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God God is eternal we're going to talk about that again uh, tonight uh, immensity I like this one will God really dwell on earth the heavens even the highest heavens cannot contain you I'm preaching at the founders conference on Psalm 8 and I've thought a lot about that you know when I consider the heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you set in place what is man that you are mindful of and there's a sense of the immensity of God um Perfect unity, the fact that God is one. Perfect unity. Again, um, that's one of the incommunicable attributes. I don't think we're going to get to that one tonight, but we may. Omnipresence, the fact that God is everywhere. Listen to this verse. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? And omniscience. Great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Uh, God knows all things. Omnipotence. God can do all things. Job says this. I, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. God can do anything. Um, spirituality. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Our God is invisible. Um, he can't be seen. No man has seen God at any time. And this makes sense because... God isn't matter, and so it's not a matter of light bouncing off some part of God and then into your eye. It doesn't work that way. God has to reveal himself to your mind. He is uh, invisible. Holiness, uh, the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Wisdom, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ, Romans 16:27. The wisdom of God, our God is a wise God. The truthfulness of God, the God of Israel does not lie or change his mind. God cannot lie. He only ever tells the truth. Uh, love, God is love, or God's love endures forever, 1 Chronicles 16:34. Compassion, our God is full of compassion, Psalm 116, verse 5. Patience, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. Our God is a patient God. He waits a long, long time, doesn't he? That's supposedly a communicable attribute, but I'm not so sure sometimes. I, you know, we're supposed to have patience, but uh, anyway. Goodness of God. The earth is full of God's unfailing goodness. Uh, his grace. You are forgiven, God. Gracious and compassionate, it says. Uh, Nehemiah 9.17. His mercy. The Lord your God is a merciful God. Righteousness. Your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God. Psalm 71.19. Justice. I, the Lord, love justice. Isaiah 61.8. You know, that's, a, that's an important verse, isn't it? Because people wonder how a loving God could send anyone to hell. 
The fact of the matter is God loves more than just people. He does love people, but he loves justice too. And so I think that's important to keep in mind. The sovereignty of God. God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.11. The glory of God. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. Revelation 21.23. And then the happiness of God. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. He's a pleased God. <laughs> you know, He's just pleased all the time. And uh, that's... That's a, an important thing. Obviously, there are times he's not, disple- he's not pleased. As the scripture says, the thing that David had done, Bathsheba, displeased the Lord. So it's a complex thing, but our God is a happy. Now, look at that. That's 25 descriptions of God with some su- scripture support. Now, could you take any one of those and plumb deeply into scripture and, and add to those, those verses? Yes, my goal was to get it on one sheet. So these aren't even necessarily the best verses. They're just the briefest, you know, um, because I wanted to get it on one sheet. But you should, I would hope, take this list or a list like it and and just use it in your prayer life. Use it in worship. Because this is the God uh, that we worship. This is the God that we love, the one that we we delight in. Any questions? We just did a really unbelievably fast overview of the attributes of God. Anything strike you as you look at that list? distinction between God and you. What makes you feel or think about that, Chris? To look at this list and see all the, the um, attributes of God and to know how wicked is my own heart. Um, there's that, that otherness and yet He loves us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. There is so much uh, room for meditation on that list as you look at it and try to understand the God that we worship will be the rest of our lives and into eternity trying to understand it. Now turn the whole package over the sheet and let's start looking at what's called the incommunicable attributes of God. And first, uh, I'm following again Wayne Grudem's outline and his systematic theology, so giving all credit to him uh, for the outline, but we filled in some other things as well. Um, but in his introduction the study of God's character, we immediately come into this concept of attributes. Attributes. And so we have to have a definition of attributes. What are attributes? Herman Bavink, who wrote a a book called um, The Doctrine of God, says this, Scripture never discusses God's being apart from his attributes. According to the Bible, God is what he reveals himself to be. Okay? So, the essence of the study of the nature of God is a study of attributes. You see what I'm saying? We're coming at these descriptions of God and trying to understand each one and then put them together into an overall understanding or view of who God is. You can't study God apart from his attributes. That's what it's saying there. So, scriptural words to describe the attributes. Look at uh, New American Standard Version of 1 Peter 2.9. Somebody read that for me if you would, right there off the sheet. That's a great verse right there. We are to proclaim the excellencies. And the Greek word there is, is really connected to this concept of attributes, the, the perfections of God's character. And, and what's so important is this word that. You see that? You are a chosen race. Do you see that? You are a chosen race that you may. What does the word that tell you? So that. So that. So... This is the reason, the purpose why God chose you. He chose you that you may declare His excellencies. You see that? So you are chosen out as the people of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession, in order that you may do something. It's not just for no reason, but in order that you may declare His excellencies. Well, I would contend that His excellencies are His attributes. You're going to declare His attributes. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. His glory and his praise, especially that Hebrew word praise, are his attributes. He will not give his attributes to idols. He will not give his glory to another as praise to idols. And then Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I would contend that that is an attribute study. 
basically, if you're looking at Habakkuk 2.14, you want to fill the world, that the world will be filled with the knowledge of His glory. His glory are like the radiant beams emanating from His character. They are attributes, is what they are. His mercy, His goodness, His kindness, His power, His omniscience. These are the rays that are kind of going into our brain and we are delighting in them. As we look at the Grand Canyon, we think, oh, what a powerful God we have. Power is one of His attributes. You see that? So we're, we're really, when you're saying the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, you're really saying we're going to know His attributes in an amazing and a personal and powerful way. Okay? God's attributes, therefore, are His perfections, His excellencies. They are descriptors or descriptions of His person, His character, His nature, based on Scripture. Very important. Do you see that? These attributes, these na this nature is some, uh, something that you really should be putting a Scripture reference to, like I did on the back sheet. In other words, if we're going to say that God is such and such, we need a verse to support it. You see? We can't just imagine Him that, you know, my God, the God I worship, is uh, this kind of a God. Well, you need to tell me what verses support that or else you're worshiping an idol. You see, that's the point. So we can't concoct God uh, out of our own imagination. So the noun de uh, dictionary definition is an attribute is a quality or characteristic belonging to a person or thing. So the chair you're sitting in has attributes, right? It has certain characteristics. Everything has attributes. God has attributes too. A quality. Now, the word quality comes from the Latin word qualis, which answers the question, what kind of? Okay, what, what kind of God is he? So you want to answer the question, what kind of God is your God? What is he like? And you would say, my God is a blank God, right? Whatever you're going to put in that, in that blank is an attribute. My God is a patient God. He's a loving God. He's a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Those are all attributes. And that is, you know, that's what you'd put in there. My God is a such and such kind of God. Now, what's interesting about the word attribute is that it's actually also a verb form spelled the exact same way with a different pronunciation. It's really fun to teach English to people for whom English is not their native language. You begin to realize what a bizarre language English really is. All right, so you have attribute or attribute, all right? I mean, it's all the same letters, but one's a noun and the other one's a verb. What does it mean to attribute something? What does that mean? You're giving credit to it, to attribute credit, for example. You're associating one thing with another. Okay, so you're associating it. Uh, right, to regard or assign or another good word would be ascribe. You're ascribing something. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is that we are not permitted to originate the attributes. We can't ascribe to God anything that he's not given us permission to ascribe to him. You see, it's really he tells us what he's like and we speak it back to him. And it must be that way. Who are we to tell God what he's like? Okay, But we can read Scripture, and when the Scripture says, ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, then guess what? We're allowed to ascribe to Him glory and strength. We've just been given permission. We've actually been commanded to do it in Psalm 29, verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. So we are not permitted to attribute anything to God that He's not told us first. Scripture is telling us what to ascribe to Him. It is not for us to make up attributes for, uh, for, for Him, but it's for Him to tell us what He's like and for us to speak it back with joy and gladness. And that is worship, isn't it? I really think that's true worship, is when you are in a passive mode receiving in something about God, you mix it together with your own thoughts and emotion and reflect it back to God in your own words with passion. To me, that's what worship's all about. But it starts passive, doesn't it? You can't originate it yourself. You have to take in through revelation what God is like. Think about it and rejoice over it and then send it back to Him in a poem or a psalm or a hymn, a spiritual song, in a prayer. Uh, or you don't even say anything. God can read your mind just for you to say, wow, that's worship. All right, Psalm 107 verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. You see that? You see how an attribute of God prompts worship? Because God is good, we should give thanks to Him. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this. So he's, verse 107, Psalm 107 verse 1 is telling the redeemed of the Lord what to say. We're being told what to say. What are we, infants? We're babies? Yes, we need to be told what to say about God. Psalm 118 verse 4 says, Let those who fear the Lord say... 
His love endures forever. They're in quotation marks. That's what we're supposed to say? Yes. All right, everybody say it. His love endures forever. Actually, there's a number of psalms in which that is a refrain. So you're being told what to say. And that's okay. And it's not me that's telling you. It's God who's speaking. All right, key concept about this, and we're going to get to this when you study the unity of God. The attributes must be taken together. You can't take one attribute and say, this is my favorite attribute of God. I really like this one. Why can't you do that? What happens if you take one of that list of 25? And I'm not saying that 25 is exhaustive. There is no exhausting God. You're not going to run out. Okay, but what I'm saying is that you take, suppose you take one and say, this is my favorite attribute. What, what's going on there? He puts down the other attributes. Okay. Well, if you take and say, hypothetically, God is love, then you cease realizing that God is justice, and then your definition of God is thrown off. If God is only love, then there is no hell, and everybody gets to go to heaven, and why did Christ come to save us if God is just love? And That's right. So you, if, you, if you take one attribute and elevate it above all the others... I think you end up with a skewed view of God. And if you have a skewed view of God, what are you? You're an idolater. You see that? To me, that is the essence of idolatry. Because whenever you shape or craft something, you are leaving some attributes out. You must do it. Because there's no way you can make something that has all of God's attributes represented. And even if you could, your representation is far inferior to the actual reality. And so God gives you words. He gives you words and tells you not to make anything with your hands. No representations of him. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You know that. You can't make any physical representation because if you were, for example, to make a golden calf and say, Here, O Israel, is your God that led you out of Egypt. That calf represents God's strength. All right? He's a young bull, let's say, something like that. And so you're picking up on his attribute of strength or power. All right, fine, our God is a powerful God, but he's not only power. And so where is his mercy, for example, represented in your golden statue? Where is his compassion? Where is his patience? Furthermore, even the attribute you're seeking to elevate, power, you didn't do a good job. Is a golden calf a good representation of God's power? You can't do it. And so therefore, we must take no attribute and elevate it above the others. All the attributes inform all the others. God's love is holy. God's holiness is loving. You see, God's justice is merciful. God's compassion is righteous. I mean, it just all intermixes there. We'll talk more about that when we get to the unity of God. Now, what they do with the attributes is they divide it into two different categories. There's always this categorization of the attributes, the incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes. This is just one way to categorize attributes. Incommunicable means that God does not communicate these to his created beings. They're his and his alone. Communicable attributes, God does communicate these uh, in some measure or some way to his created beings, and by that we mean especially man, especially to human beings. Now, there's a limitation to this classification. First of all, you're not going to find this classification anywhere in Scripture. Okay, This is a derived human classification. That doesn't mean it's not useful. I'm just saying it's derived and human. Okay, Just because something, by the way, is derived and human doesn't mean it's not useful. We have chapter and verse divisions, don't we? Those weren't in, in the original text. Uh, but they're helpful. They're useful. They're just at a lower level than the actual text itself. That's all. And so this is a, a, a derived classification. And then Grudem points out that no attribute is completely communicable. Even our wisdom isn't really like God's wisdom, is it? It's different. Even at its best, it's different. Okay, So there's no perfectly communicable attribute. Neither is any attribute com uh, completely incommunicable. In other words, there's some echoes of God's incommunicable attributes in us only at a much lesser level. For example, God's self-existence, all right, that's incommunicable. All right, but yet we are existent, right? We have an existence, so there's at least some echo of it in us. But for all of that, it's still beneficial to talk about incommunicable and communicable attributes, and we're going to do it. Does that make sense? So tonight, we're going to be looking at incommunicable attributes. Now, how does God reveal himself? He gives us, uh, for example, his names, the names of God in Scripture. 
And uh, that's a great study. And by the way, many have written books on the names of God. Perhaps you've even taken some. Uh, I'm not intending to give you a list of the names of God here. The Hebrews or the Jews listed 71 names of God from the Old Testament. So we could, with a good benefit, study each of those 71 names tonight. But I'm not proposing to do that. Bavink summarizes some of the important names here. It says the name Elohim designates God as creator and preserver of all things. El Shaddai by the word El, uh, is related to Elohim. El Shaddai represents him as the mighty one who makes nature subservient to grace. Jehovah, or Yahweh, describes him as the one whose grace and faithfulness endure forever. That's his covenant name. All right, uh, Jehovah, or Yahweh, Sabaoth, uh, Lord of hosts, is the way that's usually translated, characterizes him as the king in the fullness of his glory, surrounded by an organized host of angels, really like Lord of armies he really is. Okay, governing the entire universe as the omnipotent one and in his temple receiving the honor and adoration of all his creatures. So you can see how God's names reveal something of his character, something of his nature. The name of God also relates to his fame or the reputation he has, but I'm not going to develop that at this point. Now, Bavink, uh, Herman Bavink then lists descriptors of God. It's interesting to see the different ways that God is described. God is a lion in Isaiah 31.4. He's an eagle in Deuteronomy 32.11. He's a lamb, Isaiah 53.7. One of these, by the way, really caught my attention so much that I had to look it up. I, I, I had a hard time believing that it was in there. You tell me which one you think it is. Uh, the hand I knew about, so it wasn't that one, although that, that's an interesting one. That's where Jesus said, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen. All right, you already found it, the moth. Yes, the moth. Um, well, read it. Somebody open up Psalm 39:11 and look at it. I said that can't be right. How could God be a moth? Um, but <laughs> he's not a moth, but he's like a moth. And how is God like a moth? You have to look it up to find out. Somebody, somebody, read it. Oh, you consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. There you go. You consume their wealth like a moth. God eats up your wealth. Actually, I've experienced that. I've had my car in the shop three times this week and my wealth is getting eaten up like a moth. But at any rate, um, others of you have experienced that. I actually likened it to locusts, the invasion of locusts, but uh, so it goes. There will be no automobiles in heaven, I can guarantee that. Not meaning to offend any distributors of automobiles that may be here tonight, um, but there won't be any. I mean, you can see this list. Uh, this God is a sun and a shield, right? He's a morning star, he's a light, he's a torch, a consuming fire, a fountain, a rock, a hiding place, a strong tower, a moth we already said, a shadow. And Isaiah says he's the shadow of a great rock in a dry and weary land. Like if you can imagine that you are uh, in a desert and you find this big huge rock and, and the shadow just drops the temperature noticeably and you just rest there. You know, he's a shield, he's a temple. Uh, and many other things. So these are just lists of things that you find God comparing himself to. All the names of God are in some way tied, therefore, to something in his creation. Isn't that interesting? And we're going to talk more about that in a minute, but uh, the cumulative effect helps us understand God. Do you see that? Why do I say the cumulative effect? Why not just one of them? Let's just take one and just zero in on it and say, this is our God. Like the moth, for example. <laughs> Why don't you just take one of these? Why is it the cumulative effect that teaches accurately about God? Yeah. I mean, God is like a moth, only in a very limited sort of way, you see, when he consumes the wealth of rich people, it seems. Uh, God is like a lion, only in a limited way. Go ahead. I have a question. I, I, so this God, you talk about the Trinity of God is three yeah, Holy Spirit, it's hard to understand. But we believe you could ascribe every attribute to equally to each person of the Trinity. Um, that uh, Jesus loves justice every, much as the, every bit as much as the Father. And we, we tend to think of wrath being the Father's and mercy being the Son's. That is really harmful to think that way because it was God the Father that concocted the plan of salvation anyway. It was His idea to send His own Son. The Lord, it says, God was pleased to crush Him and make Him suffer. This is, He's speaking of His own Son. Jesus, for His part, loves holiness and righteousness every bit as His Father does. 
I mean, and so we would not want to say that, that these attributes are especially dedicated to the Father. These really belong to the Son. We wouldn't do that. Yeah, Holy Spirit, yeah. Very, very difficult. But there's so much evidence about the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. He's mentioned by name in the second verse in the Bible that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. And so right from the very beginning, we've got the Holy Spirit active and ministering. So the Father, Son, and Spirit are equally described in these attributes. Very good. Now, anthropomorphic language. Let's talk about this. What do we mean by that? Well, anthropomorphic means speaking of God in human terms. The word anthropology is the study of human beings, right? So anthropos means that, you know, it means man or human being speaking in God as though he were a human, using human language or in terms of creation that we know. This procedure or process is valid. It is valid to do this. How do we know that it's valid to speak of God in human terms? Yes. Because we were created in His image. That's very, very important. And also, in a very simple way, because Scripture does it. does it all over the place. All over the place does Scripture do it. And we're going to see that in a minute. But it is valid because God does it constantly. All right? We were created in His image. Now look at what Grudem says here. All that Scripture says about God uses anthropomorphic language. That is, language that speaks of God in human terms. It must do that. How else could we understand it? Do you see that? The point is so that we can know Him. And we can know that know Him. And, and this is just an amazing thing, but God is speaking to us in human terms. Jesus said this to Nicodemus, remember, about being born again and Nicodemus couldn't get it? He said, I speak to you in, I've spoken to you in earthly terms and you don't understand. Suppose I use heavenly language. Why don't I tell you how we talk about these things up in heaven? Are you going to get it? No, I must put it in earthly terms or you won't understand. So it's, it's valid. Herman Bovink said, listen to this, we have the right to anthropomorphize God because he himself theomorphized when he created man. That's exactly what you just said. We are created in the image of God. And so there's an unbelievable connection between human beings and God, humanity and God. Okay? Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. And so God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And so we are created in the image of God. Very, very good. Now, look at the next few little minor points here. The Bible speaks of human roles ascribed to God. The Bible speaks of human actions ascribed to God. The Bible speaks of human emotions ascribed to God. The Bible even speaks of human body parts ascribed to God's activities metaphorically. I couldn't just say ascribed to God. I had to be careful. Okay? Look at the first one, the human roles. God is called a bridegroom. He's called a husband. He's called a father. Judge and king. He's a warrior. He's a builder and maker. He's a shepherd, a physician, and many, many more. Okay? These are human roles. Uh, the Bible also speaks of human actions ascribed to God. He, uh, we see him knowing, remembering, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sitting, rising, walking, and wiping away tears, and many, many more. Right? Remember the, uh, when, how God catches Adam and Eve in their sin? Remember that? What was it that startled Adam and had him hide behind the tree? Remember the bushes? He was in the bushes. He felt naked, but he heard a sound, didn't he? What was it? He heard him walking in the garden. Yeah, he heard him walking. And so there was a sound of step, 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 coming judgment. You know, and he was immediately terrified. Yeah, and so people are like, oh, man, what a bunch of mythology that is. No, that's not mythology. That is, he knew what would make Adam afraid. And he intended to bring fear to him because it was judgment day. He came, it says, in the cool of the day is the King James, ruach in the spirit of the day would be a good translation. What was the day? What did the day call for? It called for judgment. It was time for judgment. And so it's a terrifying thing, but he comes and there's this anthropomorphic walking in the garden. Bible also speaks of human emotions ascribed to God. Joy, for example, or grief, anger, love, hatred, wrath, etc. And the Bible speaks of human body parts ascribed to God's activities metaphorically. Now listen, we speak of God's face many times. I mean, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What does that mean? Well, he looks like this when you're doing evil. Wow, that's, you know, that's scary. He has eyes. His eyes roam to and fro over the earth. Uh, eyelids. I haven't looked that one up. You have to look. That. I didn't look Psalm 11:4 up. But God has ears. He has a nose or mouth, lips, tongue, neck, arms, hand, finger. By the way, for those of you that aren't going to my uh, talk tomorrow evening on Psalm 8, I did a study on the finger of God. I'm going to tell you what. It was rich. It was rich. 
because it says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your what? Fingers. I thought, wow, that's interesting. Why does it say that? And I come up with two reasons. The choice of the word finger points to God's power and also to his precision. You see that? Why to his power? Well, if it had said that the heavens were the work of the arm of the Lord, right? That's, you know, his might. When you think of the arms of a, of a strong warrior, that's, that's the source of his strength. Or maybe the legs. But, you know, he's got mighty arms. Well, he made the heavens with his fingers. It was not, it, it was effortless for him. It was not a big deal. But then secondly, precision. You think about the skilled crafting of the, you know, the universe is set together in a very skillful way. And so, you, like the fingers of a skilled pianist or sculptor, yeah. Well, I don't know what you mean by literal. What, what does that mean? Well, you know, when Moses saw um, God, the scripture says, it, I think it says he looked, he looked at his tender parts. It seems right. to him looking at, at the back side of God, right. suggesting that there's actually a front and a back. Right. And I, but I, again, think that this is anthropomorphic because you, he said, you can't see me. So I'll let you see my hindquarters or back parts or something like that. The idea is my full glory will kill you. I, I will I will destroy you if you see my full glory. I think, Rick, that this is all of this is how God communicates to us. It's the same thing with the presence of the Lord. What does it mean to be in the presence of the Lord? Isn't he over there also? We talk about this in our Hebrew study on Thursday. Is God here or there? Well, yes. Well, then what does it mean to be in the presence of the Lord? Or it is good for me to be near God. Well, it's all got to do with us. It's got to do with how far we are from him because he's everywhere anyway. That's deep. Anyway, we'll, you know, we'll talk about that another time. But um, the fact of the matter is, I believe that our bodies, I'm going to say this you know, at the Founders thing on Friday morning, but our bodies physically are also created in the image of God. So our hands, our eyes, our ears, and all that reflect something about God. You see what I'm saying? Follow me on this. The key to understand these body parts is to understand that the human body itself is part of the image of God with certain cells biologically functioning to do for our souls what no cells are needed to do for God. He doesn't need cells to hear. He doesn't need, for example, look at Psalm 94.9 there. Does he who implanted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Well, what does your hearing do for you? It takes things into you so that you can understand them. You can hear the word or sounds, etc. God doesn't need an ear for that. He knows all the sound waves that are emanating through the universe and doesn't need an eardrum and a cochlea or whatever. You don't need those parts of the... He doesn't need them. We do, he doesn't. But he can hear without an ear. Does that make sense? He can see without a cornea or a retina. But these features in a human body correspond to God's capabilities. And thus the body is also in the image of God. You see? So when we say we talk about the hand of the Lord was on him, he doesn't have a hand. He doesn't have hind quarters. But it's basically his way of saying, this is a little part of me that I'll reveal to you right now. Enough for your face to shine when you walk down the mountain, but not enough to kill you. So he's restraining himself, holding himself back. Hey, Tom. So when we speak of the hand of the Lord was upon him, we're talking about what? What does that mean, that God's hand was upon him? Huh? Protection, okay. So it refers to God protecting. In some way, his power was around this man's life to affect certain things. The hand of the Lord, that kind of thing. The eyes of the Lord. He was taking in information. You know those pictures like in Ezekiel of like a wheel within a wheel and covered with eyes all around? Isn't that like weird? You know? Well, God doesn't have those eyes, but He's saying, I see everything. I see it all. It's His way of communicating to us in a way we'll understand. I think actually He intends to weird us out. I think we're supposed to realize that He's just at this high, high level, just different than us. Okay? All right, the theater of his glory. Basically, the key principle, I got this from Ronnie Stevens, a talk I heard him give recently, and just I think this is so good. Many people think the gospel was given to us to help us understand the world. Not so. Rather, the world was given us to help us understand the gospel. You understand that? God physically arranged this, what Calvin calls the theater of his glory, so that we would understand how to be saved, that we would know God. 
And you know why? Because the gospel came first, didn't it? Which came first, the universe or the gospel? It did. The gospel came first before the foundation of the world. God had worked out the gospel plan. It's right there in Ephesians 1. Read about it. But at any rate, uh, God had figured it out. Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The gospel came first. Then God created a universe that would help you know how to seek him. Let me tell you what I mean by this. The other day, I was reading in, um, reading in the Bible in Deuteronomy 6 and just going over thinking about Deuteronomy. And uh, Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then it says, These commands are to be on your mind. You are to teach them to your children or impress them on your children. At that moment, Carolyn walked in. It was about 7 o'clock. And she came in to give me a hug. And um, I said uh, I said to her, I want to read something to you. So I read what I just quoted to you. I said, you know that God wants you to love him today. He said, okay, I will. I said, will you love God? I want to love God. I said, Carolyn? Yes, Daddy. What does it mean to love God? She said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I said, all right, fair enough. All right, um, what does it mean to love anything? She said, like what? I said, well, you love mommy and daddy. You love Bucky, his little blanket that she sleeps with at night. Um, you love ice cream, right? You love your betta fish, right, Jack? Um, you love these things. Oh, she said, oh, all right, it means to really like them, right? That's what she came up with. But she is learning love from things first. At some point, she'll learn to love God. And that's okay. That's what God has done for us. How can you do it any other way? How can you obey the command to love God if you don't first love ice cream or love being with your mommy? Or, you know, I tell you, Psalm 22. Just take a minute and look. This is something that I noticed and I'd never noticed, I'd never seen it before, but this is, man. Look at, somebody read Psalm 22, verse 9. Okay. You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust even at my mother's breast. Now, the NIV puts in trust in you, and I think it's appropriate. He's meaning that he was learning trust when he was nursing as an infant. At some point, that's going to get moved over to God. You see what I'm saying? At some point, he will understand God well enough to trust in him the way that he trusted in his mother from the time of his infancy. And so from the very beginning of physical life, you're getting categories and stuff structured in your mind so that you can love God and believe in Him and obey Him. And it's the way that God has ordained. It's very physical, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's the, the Bible's full of earth and trees and rocks and rivers and wind and clouds and sunshine and all of this stuff. And why? Because God made it all and it's all pointing to Him that we would trust in Him and love Him. That's a very deep thought, and I've, I've been thinking about it a lot, that God created the universe to help us understand the gospel. Um, I, I think you ought to keep thinking about that. This is the theater of his glory. Now, balanced definitions of God's incommunicable attributes. This is from Grudem. It's easy to misunderstand, especially the incommunicable attributes. So what he's going to do is he's going to positively state the principle, and then he's going to give a balancing phrase prefaced by the word yet to avoid error or going too far. For example, look at the next one. We're going to get into the incommunicable attributes now. The first one is independence or self-existence. The definition, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Yet, we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. You see, you could take the attribute and go too far and say, well, then he doesn't need us for anything and so we don't need to do anything. We, don't, we can't affect him in any way. And so he's going to give us the definition but then balance it. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify and bring him joy. Yes, John. Feels love more than we do? More yeah. frequently or more yeah, deeply? I mean, Frequently, yes, because he's dealing with six billion people, and uh, we're not. So but, you know, so each of his emotions must be. How can I explain this? Like he is love. Mm -hmm. So 
he's probably all of his emotions in a way. So how can he be more happy than he already is? Because it must, he must possess the, the ultimate happiness. So how can we make him more happy than, than he already is? I don't is? think you can. But yet he deals with us in time. And we're going to get to that. He does deal with us in time. And the things you do can displease him or they can please him. You can bring him joy or you can bring him grief because the scripture says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So it's a mystery. And I, I tell you what, we're going to bump against mystery many times when we're studying the incommunicable attributes of God. But I think we're not increasing his happiness. We're not increasing his joy. But he rejoices over us. You see, we're not decreasing his happiness or joy, but he's grieved when we sin. It's, it's difficult. And I, I've wondered this before in prayer. We're praying, God's hearing our prayer, or we're living in front of him, he's seeing us, and he rejoices. But at the same time, some other guy or lady somewhere else is doing the exact opposite, and he's grieved over them at the same time. And yet he's essentially one. All, I don't and understand that. Yeah, all at the same time, all the time. It's yeah, it's impossible to understand. Now, let's talk about self-existence. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Another way of saying this is that God doesn't need to be created. Self-existence means he doesn't need to be created. He's independent from uh, creation. Uh, aseity is another word for this attribute. Uh, literally, Latin it means from himself. God gets everything from himself. He has no needs. He didn't need to be created and he does not need to be sustained. Okay, God said, uh, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Okay, so God is self-existent. He just is the I am all the time. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you not were God, you are God. He's always, he always is. He always is what he is. Jesus says the same thing before Abraham was born. I am. An unbelievably blasphemous statement if he's not God in the flesh. All right? But he is God in the flesh, and so he can make this statement. All right. An a a application of this is that God needs nothing from us. As though if he didn't get it, he would be somehow weakened or might even perish. Right? The reverse is absolutely not true. We need many things from God. And if he doesn't give them to us, we will die. It's just that simple. But God doesn't need anything from us in order to continue existing. That's what we're saying. He's self-existent. Look at uh, Acts 17, 24 and 25. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands. You could meditate on that for a long time. Say, well, I want to serve the Lord. Well, just serve him because Paul says, I am a bondservant of Christ Jesus and we should serve the Lord. But yet he says here he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Do you see what, what the implications of that? He doesn't need your service at all. He's independent of you. He doesn't need us as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Everything comes from him anyway, right? Including you and your service and your... Hey, I have a good idea, God. What? Oh, you know, tell me about it. Share it with me. You know, can you ever get ahead of God? You know, it's like, uh, well, I'm going to give this thing to you. I mean, you don't have even a thimbleful to pour into him that didn't come from him anyway. It's all his, all of it. So uh, Job 41.11 says, "Who has a, this is God speaking to Job, putting Job in his place, suffering Job, but yet God puts him in his place. And yet heals him, doesn't he? I mean, he heals him just by speaking to him and reminding him of who he is. The immense power of God totally healed Job before any of his scabs or wounds were healed. It's an amazing thing. God is sufficient. Who has a claim against me that I need to pay, says God. Can anybody make a claim against me that I owe them something? I don't owe anybody anything. Everything under heaven belongs to me. And you could add from other verses, and I can do anything I want with it, anytime I want without asking permission. You realize that. I mean, people have a hard time with that. We are so man-centered in our view. But God says it all belongs to me and I can do what I want with it. What does he say in, uh, in Psalm 50? I like this a lot. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall. This is under the old covenant system where they're offering sacrifice. And you get into thinking, well, here's another bull for God. You know, it's like, I don't need any bull from your stalls. I have no need of this. 
I don't need any bull from your stall or goats from your pens for every animal of the forest is mine. Did you forget? <laughs> You're not offering me anything. Every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. People quote that to say, you know, trust God for your finances. Fine. But realize that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is you can't give me anything that isn't mine already. That's what he's saying. I own everything. And he says, I know every bird in the mountains. Stop there. I know them all by name. I know how many feathers they have. I know when they were born. I knew their great-great-grandmother if they have them. I guess birds do. Why not? All right. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. Listen to this. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. I wouldn't tell you. You think if I had a need and I don't, but would I come and ask you to meet it? If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Just read those if you ever get into feeling too big about yourself. You just read it and so you realize, wow, this is our God. And yet it's healing to think this way, isn't it? You think our God is a mighty God with no needs whatsoever. He doesn't need anything. And then Romans 11:35 and 36. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Boy, I love that. It's just so refreshing to think about that. And so I write a note here at the bottom. Be especially leery of Christian sermons or songs in particular that follow this line, speaking of God as needing us to worship him or to serve him in some way, to lead the lost to Christ, to be his hands and feet in the world, something like that. I'm not denigrating that, but I'm saying don't think of it as essentially God needing something. That's what I'm trying to cut off because it isn't true. God has no needs. He chooses to work in this or that way or to reveal his glory in a specific manner, but he has no needs. Okay? Now, all creatures, all creatures are totally dependent on God for their very existence, and that's every single moment. Psalm 104, verse 27 through 30. Actually, take a minute and open to Psalm 104. I, Psalm 104, I've been going over it in my mind and just learning so much from it, and it is incredible how rich it is. It's a creation kind of psalm, and he goes through all these different creatures like storks and, and fish and birds and conies, whatever a cony is, some kind of a rock badger. A hyrax, does that help? What's a hyrax? I don't know, some little rodent that lives up in a crack somewhere and, and, and sucks on moss to get its moisture. And uh, God says, I'm going to put you up in the crags, up with the conies. Anyway, um, Psalm 104, verse 27 and following. This is, this is very, very striking to me. Look at Psalm 104, verse uh, 27. But before that, you've got, all right, verse 21, you see the lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. Lions go to God, in effect, without knowing it and say, give me something to eat. And what does God provide for the lions? Well, some other poor animal. Okay, but anyway, um, the sun rises and they, the lions, steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. This is a very important line now. Then man goes out to his work, to his labor until evening. Okay, so man's got his place too and he's going to go out and he's going to work in the fields for the day, right? So the lions go out at night and the man works during the day. Everybody's got their place, right? And then it says, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, with living things both large and small. There the ships, there's man again, go to and fro. And the Leviathan, that's the whale, I think, in this context, which you formed a frolic there. Now, verse 27, All of these, all these creatures, look to you to give them their food at the proper time. That includes man, doesn't it? All creatures look to God to feed them. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. Don't stop there, though. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. That includes man, folks. All of these things are under God's sovereign control. Even a loved one, and you're sitting next to the bedside and they're laboring in their final breaths. When God takes away the breath, they die. That's what happens. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God 
as long as I live. Verse 34, May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord, but may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Now, if you look at that, all creatures are dependent on God to survive. Do you see that? They all have to look to God to provide for them. Acts 17, 25 and 28. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. For in him we live and move and have our being. Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Listen, and by your will they were created and have their being. So in other words, their origination came from God and their sustenance comes from God. That's what we're saying here. Listen, this means that God can will out of existence any one of his creatures anytime he chooses and no one can question him. This includes the devil. Do you see that? Is the devil not a created being? Don't ever think of the devil as some negative God, equal and opposite in power. It's not true. God can pull the plug on his existence anytime he chooses. Anytime. And you can say, why doesn't he do it? Well, that's another question. And he's unfolding a history here and he's doing something. But he, he's not lacking in power over the devil. And it makes you wonder how in the world the devil could think he could take God on. You know, I mean, what are you thinking in order to fight God? But people do it too. They think that they can take God on. But God can pull the plug on existence anytime. But they don't realize, I think that God keeps things from people in order for them to... He leaves them in darkness so they don't see that they can't do it. Well, they're not immediately aware of his, of his presence. But you know, the devil is in, a, in an amazing way and yet he defies him anyway. No, that's true. Only God has full knowledge. Yet God can and does receive pleasure and glory from his creation. This is why I read up through the end of Psalm 104. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Do you see that? God can take pleasure in what he's made. All right? Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God singing over me? Wow. That's passionate. Why would God sing over me? Can't imagine. Isaiah 43.7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And God can and does delegate responsibilities to his created being. 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see that? So he can commit to us certain works to do, but he doesn't need us. That's what I'm saying. He may choose to work in a certain way, but he doesn't need all right, second attribute, immutability or unchangeableness. Definition, God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet, God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. So we talked about that a few minutes ago, right? He's not some rock in one sense. In one sense, God is a rock. We'll talk about that in a minute, but he's unmoving, unshakable, right? But in another sense, he's very movable. I mean, he's always re relating to the present situation. Isn't that true? I mean, I've wondered before about that. We all have a wonderful quiet time and just enjoy fellowship with God and just worship him and have a sense of his pleasure and get up and sin, you know? And, and I think, now, God, how could you give me such a wonderful time? It's, he's totally in the moment there. He doesn't treat us as what we're about to do. And it's an odd thing. And I can prove it from Scripture. In Genesis 1, he looks at all the things he's created and what does he say about it? They're very good. And yet, five chapters later, he's looking at the heart of the human race and says it's only evil all the time and he's grieved that he made the human race, you see? And so there's, he's, he's in the moment. Right now, it's good. He knows full well what's going to happen. He knows it before it even occurs. But at this moment, it's good and he says so. Very good. So he does relate to us in time. That's very, very important to keep that in mind. Now, evidence of God's immutability. Psalm 102. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded, but you remain the same and your years will never end. What is that psalm talking about? It's talking about the physical universe, the physical creation. And what is it telling us will happen to the physical creation? They're going to wear out and he's going to discard the physical creation like somebody changing a garment. He's going to roll it up and throw it in a hamper. All right, whatever. 
But he will not change through that whole process. He never changes. He never changes. Malachi 3.6 I, the Lord, do not change. I don't know how much more plainly it could be said. I do not change. Therefore, you, O Jacob, are not destroyed. <laughs> I think that's interesting. Our preservation from destruction is based on God's immutability. If he changed, he'd destroy us. That's the implication. Do you see that? And uh, then the RSV in James 1.17, I like every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. See that? God never changes. God's purposes never change. He accomplishes what he sets out to do. I'm not going to read that here because it belongs in a different place better, but you can read that. Bavink wrote this, the doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between creator and creature. Creator is, we become. Do you see that? And we're constantly becoming all the time. We are being changed from glory into glory, right? So we're being transformed all the time. We're changing. It, we're actually even commanded to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, right? God is never going to be transformed. He doesn't need to be transformed. He, in fact, he cannot be transformed. He is what he is. So this is the essential difference between creator, cre creator and creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeking rest and satisfaction and finding this rest in God, in him alone, for only he is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in Scripture, God is often called the rock. Now, does God sometimes change his mind? Uh-oh. There are some verses that cover this, right? It seems as though from time to time God changes his mind, right? There's a whole heresy called open theism in which God is constantly reacting to the decisions of free will entities like human beings, okay? So some people talk about hyper-Calvinism. This is hyper-Arminianism, where free will is elevated to king over everything and even God himself is servant to human free will. So God cannot... It is impossible for God to know the future. He cannot know it because he doesn't know what you're going to do. But he has great reflexes, all right? And so whatever you do, he can still work around it and get his thing done. That's how it works. I mean, that's astonishing to me because it's so flatly unbiblical. I, don't, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine how there could be, for example, predictive prophecy centuries in advance. I will never know. But God manages to get a, a little vessel of wine vinegar at the foot of the cross without violating someone's free will. I'm telling you what, how, you know, 30 pieces of silver and all these predictive prophecies. Peter, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows, but of course you have free will in the matter and so I really have no idea what you're going to do. But it sure looks like you're going to deny me three times before a rooster crows. I mean, that's my instinct anyway, but of course you have a free will in the matter and it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't line up with Scripture. Open theism, God cannot know the future. Now, the basis of open theism are certain passages in which it seems that God changes his mind, and there are some. For example, Moses successfully interceded for Israel. Remember, God said, I'm, uh, leave me alone, I'm going to wipe them out, and I'll make a great nation out of you. Right? And Moses says, you know, the Egyptians will hear about it, your glory will be impugned, please don't do it, you know, and he intercedes for the people. All right? And God, it seems, changes his mind and says, okay, Moses, you win, I won't wipe them out. Hezekiah uh, was told by the prophet Isaiah, put your things in order, you're going to die. Uh, and Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and prays and cries and says, remember all the good things I've done for you, God? And then Isaiah says, okay, God has hereby added 15 years to your life. Okay? Or God not bring a promised judgment on Nineveh when the people repented. You can see it in the Veggie Tales movie if you'd like to go uh, look at that. Only kidding, not espousing Veggie Tales. Not espousing Veggie Tales. Um, but there it is, uh, the story of Nineveh, in which he said 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And uh, they repent, much to the chagrin of Jonah, very ticked about it, very upset. He said, I knew it. I knew it all along. I knew you were going to do this. That's why I didn't want to go. He said, I know that you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. I know that's the kind of God you are, and so I didn't want to come preach. All right? So if anybody thinks it's because Jonah was, lacked courage, that's not true. Throw me overboard, he says. He did not lack courage and he was not afraid to die, but he didn't want to preach. Did he die under that tree? They didn't answer that. Well, there's lots of unanswered questions about the book of Jonah, aren't there? <laughs> Just like did the older brother come into the feast in the parable of the prodigal son? I mean, we don't really know. All right. Also, the strongest is the repenting. Now, turn to 1 Samuel 15 
And this, I think, will solve the problem. 1 Samuel 15. <clears throat> and this is the key. God commanded Samuel to anoint Saul as king. Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul turned out to be a great disappointment in many ways. He was egotistical. He was disobedient. He did many things wrong. And so finally in 1 Samuel 15, verse um, 10, um, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And then verse 11, I am grieved, says the helpful NIV. Uh, I am grieved. <laughs> I'll tell you. Trying to make it easy for us. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Well, it doesn't say I am grieved in the Hebrew. It says I repent. That's what it says. In every other place that the word is used, it means I repent. All right? So, what is going on here? Well, it seems that God has changed his mind. He had hoped for better out of um, Saul and instead it turned out worse. And he says, okay, that's it. I'm, I repent. I changed my mind from having this man as king. I want you to anoint somebody else. And I want you to take the kingdom away from him. I want you to proclaim this. And that's when he says to the Lord, delight and burn offerings and sacrifice as much as obeying the Lord to obey is better than sacrifice, etc. But um, Samuel, uh, I mean, Saul is very, very upset. In verse 24, he says, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Now, he's concerned about saving face here. He doesn't want Samuel to walk away from him in a big show of separation. He says, please walk back with me and let's go through with the sacrifice. Please. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Very hard words at this moment. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Just a shocking moment there. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, listen, to one better than you. Boy, that must have stung. Now listen to verse 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. <laughs> For he is not a man that he should change his mind. So twice in one verse he says he doesn't change his mind. Now, you could, you could perhaps argue that one author of Scripture, like Paul, is arguing against James on justification by faith. This is the same account. In the same account, he says, I repent that I've made Saul king, and then later he says he does not repent or change his mind. How do you put the two together? How do the two put, get put together? Well, I think it has to do with how God relates to us in time. Okay? He knew very well, before, he even, before the foundation of the world, he knew what Saul would do. He was not surprised or shocked. There's no new information coming into him. But the time has come. In the fullness of time, the extent of this man's character has been revealed. And as a result, God is turning his face away from his kingship. You see? It's not like, oh, new information. I didn't know that he would do this. He knew all along. And so therefore, God's so-called repenting, it looks for all the world to us like repenting. And so, therefore, he uses that word. It's anthropomorphic. You know, I'm speaking to you of way, the way it's going to be. My face is against your kingship from now on, and it will not change. And that's what he says in verse 29. I'm not going to change my mind. I'm not going to turn back again toward you. But God does not repent as we do. What causes us to repent? More information, seeing, being disappointed in things that happened that don't turn out like we More information, being disappointed. Okay. A change of heart that our essential nature is changing. That's what salvation is, right? We have an essentially a new nature, right? Can any of those things happen to God? New information, a new nature, a new heart, new anything? No, it's all impossible. And so we must learn then that when God speaks of his repentance, he's helping us understand how it's going to be from now on. The Ninevites will not be destroyed and Saul will not continue under God's favor as king. That's how it is. So it's anthropomorphic language. He does not get new information and change his mind. Okay? It's very important. This is a prowling danger to evangelical churches out there, espousing free will to this high level so that God doesn't really have any idea what's going on and it's just tracking history like the rest of us are. All right? Um, I'm going to stop there. Uh, any questions? You can read the rest of this and then begin next time talking about eternity, God in eternity. Yes, Brevard.
We can, but it's so important to put the fences up that Scripture puts. And do you see how in 1 Samuel 15, 29, Scripture puts a very strong fence up about thinking about God as though he repents? He says very, very plainly, don't think of me as repenting the way people repent because I don't. I don't lie and I don't change my mind. So I think what we should do is put up the fences and then stay on the playground in the center and not hop the fence. And open theism hops the fence into thinking that God changes his mind or that God, you know, doesn't know, know things. So, yeah. I think maybe in response to a story, you Right. I mean, you will never have a complete understanding. We all know that. Uh, it's impossible. But I think we should go as far as Scripture goes. And when there is a clear verse like 1 Samuel 15, 29, the Lord does not lie or change his mind, we should take that in and think of God that way from now on. And so when, then we, when we come to another verse, which it seems that God's repenting, we use that light to understand that repentance, I would say. Tanya. Okay. It's true. And I think that that's what it's meant to do. You're meant to look at the Grand Tetons or the Grand Canyon or uh, a hurricane or whatever and say, what a mighty God we have. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to study tonight. It's, uh, it's been inadequate, but I pray that it's been truthful and helpful. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen your people by studying you. Father, empower us, Lord, to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.